Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you because you are merciful and gracious to us that you gather to yourself and your Son, Jesus Christ, the people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, to come and worship you and marvel, firstly, at your creation, and then at your creation within us in redemption, Lord, that you stoop down to us, that you empathize with us in our pain, but you do not leave us in that pain and misery and death, but by your Son's resurrection, we rise with him into the heavenly places, Lord. And on a day like today, we get to rejoice in that. We get to taste the first fruits of a new heavens and earth here with our brothers and sisters as we hear the gospel taught and preached and tasted at the table. Be with us now as we dig into your word. Help us to orient our lives according to the truth that's in your word. Help us to be a people of the word that love the Bible above our own opinions and views. Help us to cherish the treasure of your word. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Children are free to go to their classrooms. If you do not have a teacher, you're welcome to stay with me. All right, last week we went over God's imminence. We, we had discussed the creation narrative from the perspective of God's transcendence, his speaking all things into existence, but we see his imminence when he draws near to sculpt man from the dust and breathes in him the breath of life. We saw that, that breathing, that proximity, is done through his spirit. We also discussed how the scriptures is God-breathed, that we have this access now through Christ. But with the sculpting, he gives humankind a rational soul. And we also discussed how man is made in the image and likeness of God and how those two descriptors have been a matter of discussion for theologians. Image as the image of a king limiting his, his lands. That was a, a practice in the near uh, in the ancient Near East. You had the faces of kings to delimit the kingdom and the rulers. And we have likeness in the sense of our proximity to God, our accessibility, the, the privilege of gazing Him and having communion with Him above the animals. So that's the image and likeness. And we also saw how humankind is to do as God has done. So as God has created in His image, He did. He completed a work, He assessed it as good and entered into rest, so we are to work in that same Manner. It's the mode of life of work, assessment, and rest. And so we see all these, these, these pictures, and then we come into what will be the trial in Genesis chapter 3. As we said, God creates a work, and we are to create after Him. We are to work and take dominion of the earth, and we are going to be assessed. And this is part of God's assessment. He is going to, he is going to send man. He's going to commission him not only to take dominion and multiply, but there is a defiler that he is going to have to face. And so the temple, I mean, the garden is created as a sanctuary. That's why I sent that photo through email so we can start to see 
the garden in this light and seeing the after the fall, the cherubim that stand with the sword in the middle and it's guarding the access to the tree of life. And so now we're going to go into that. So, Jackie, can you can you read for me Numbers chapter 3, verses 6 through 8? Not yet. And Michael, Genesis 3, 24. So we had, we had gone through this, but it's good to repeat it. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. We had discussed that keep, that word in Hebrew is shamar, which is to guard. It's important because then this word is going to be translated differently, like what Michael is going to read in Genesis 3.24. Go ahead. So that word shamar is the word that he just read for guarding. So Adam is to guard in that sense. And then Numbers 3, 6 to 8, we're going to have the picture of the Levites and their function guarding the temple. Go ahead, Jackie. So you see that same motif of motif of keeping watch and keeping guard of the different elements in the tabernacle. So Adam's vocation is to exercise dominion over creation. We see him naming the animals. And he already begins that work, that good work of naming the animals and giving this name implies what? That he has dominion over them. Just how God has named all things and has brought it into existence. So now Adam is doing the same thing. So he has to, he exercises dominion over creation, but he also has to guard the garden. So that sets this, the stage for the trial in Genesis 3. So we're going to focus in on Genesis 3 for a moment. We're going to take our time a little bit in here. So the guardians of the sanctuary are now, now going to be tested for fidelity to their king in Genesis 3. And although the term covenant is not used, but one does not need the term to communicate the concept of covenant, that God had entered into this relationship with God. He gave him a responsibility. He is to obey perfect and personally. And he gave him his vocation and he gave him how he's going to exercise that vocation. And so he is to live according to God's standard. And if he does not, we see that the warning merits death. If he obeys, he enters into this rest that we've already Disgust. So verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. Now we're going to focus on two concepts here. The serpent. His, uh, the serpent is the Satan. Okay? His origin story is mysterious, but the Bible does provide some details. Now the symbol of being a serpent. In the ancient Near East was a symbol or a mix of life, wisdom, and chaos. Life, wisdom, and chaos. And we see this also in the Bible. It's not necessarily evil. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16. Be wise or as simple as doves. I mean, be simple as doves and wise as serpents, right? There's a, there's a wisdom that's 
with this imagery of serpent. So St. Augustine has two ways to to demonstrate kind of like the serpent wisdom. The first is the serpent's uh, inclination to shed skin, to renew. It hides, and then it, as it's hiding, it's renewing itself to go out and face the world. And so it kind of mirrors what sanctification looks like for the believer, right? You have to be diligent about your sanctification, working without what God is working within in your salvation. So as you progress in your holiness, you're shedding the old skin. You're shedding the old man. Ephesians 4, 17-31 emphasizes this. Putting on the new man and shedding the old. And the other way that St. Augustine kind of explains this is that when the serpent is in attack mode, what does it do? Right? It lift, well, I'm thinking of a cobra. But it lifts up its head and it kind of like wraps around, it exposes its body while it protects its head. So the same way, Augustine takes that imagery and says, the body of Christ is to protect its head. And who is the head of the church? Christ. Very good. So it's kind of like this, where the elders, the deacons, are always in watch for false doctrine, for heresy, for sin in general in the church. So the body is exposed to all these things while protecting the head. So in those, in those two senses, we see this imagery of the serpent. Now, uh, let me see. Jackie, 2 Corinthians 11.14. Look for that. Um, Heather, can you look for John chapter 8, verse 44? We're going to look at different titles that the Bible gives to Satan. And then, Tyler? Revelation 12, verses 7, 7 through 17. So, Jackie, 2 Corinthians 11, 14. Okay, so we see that the serpent, now that we've gone through the symbol, he is a spiritual being, right? He disguises himself as an angel of light. That's why we, we also think of him as an angel. Heather. Yes, ma'am. There we go. So we have an angel of light. We have father of lies. In him there is no truth. And Tyler, Revelation 12, verses 7 through 17. Before you go, this is one of the biggest, this is the most light we're going to get on the figure of the serpent. Go ahead.
All right. So that's the biggest picture. There's a lot that's going on there, right? So what's depicted there is the victory of Christ's purchasing of his bride and a new creation. That is not the imagery of creation. That is what happens after the victory of Christ on the cross. The accuser, there we have another, right? Another title for, for the serpent. The accuser who accuses us in the heavenly abode. We see that picture in Job, right? He has access to the throne of God and he is constantly accusing the people of God for what they truly are, sinners who deserve wrath. But because of Christ's victory, what enables, what does that enable? He is thrown down. He is cast out. He can no longer accuse you and me in the presence of God. Why? Why? Christ's victory, but... Okay, so when Jesus raises from the dead, where does he go after he's resurrected? Very good. Yes, William, are you going to say something? Very good, yes. At the, he, his resurrection necessitates the ascension. This is important. It's not just about Jesus rising from the dead. It's him actually ascending into the throne of God as our high priest, as our king. But it's because he's entering the courts of heaven... And as he enters the courts of heaven, Michael, not him, but (laughs) the angel Michael is taking the accuser and saying, it is over, buddy. Get out. It is in that moment. And he's cast down into earth, and this is a little bit tangential. But we see that the imagery of the wilderness is assimilated with the church, and she's given wings, and she's given provision in this wilderness. But the earth is not against her. In the first wilderness... We remember the rebellion of Korah. When that rebellion happened, the earth swallowed up the people of God in the wilderness because of their betrayal. And the enemy here, cast down, is opening his mouth and sending the earth to be crushed, to crush these people, to crush the sons and daughters of the woman. But the earth defends them. He swallows the attacks versus the earth being against us in the wilderness. But that's tangential. But... Just to get a full picture of what's going on uh, here after Christ's resurrection. So we see that he is, the, he is an angel of light. He is the father of lies. He is an accuser. He uses the serpent, right, as a symbol. It's crafty, right? So this word crafty, it means skillful or clever, right? It's not necessarily a negative descriptor, but it is used within deceitful contexts. Crafty means adept in using subtlety and cunning. For an example, you might describe someone as crafty if they achieve what they want in a clever way, often in deceiving people, right? Jackie, could you read Job 5, verses 12 through 13? Job 5. And let me give a little bit of a context while you get that. We're going to look at how the word crafty is used in this context. Eliphaz, which is Job's friend, is suggesting to Job that, listen, you need to appeal to God. you got nothing. And because you, you're being stripped, there's clearly something that you're hiding. And you're being crafty about it. You have it? Go ahead. 
I think it's Willie. Wiley? Okay. Thank you. English is not my first language. All right. So, <laughs> Karen, can you look for Psalm 83, verses 1 through 3? We're going to look at one more, one more picture of this word crafty being used. And again, it's always assimilated with deceiving, with cleverness being assimilated with this, in, this intention to, to lie, to cheat, to, to take, right? To take, really, what doesn't belong to you in a way that is clever. You see, the craftiness is making plans, it's doing something behind the back, it's making all these different moves to be able to deceive God. So in that first verse, that use of serpent and him being crafty, I hope that's clear enough. So now that we enter after first, after the first verse, now we're going to get a picture in verses 1 through 5. I have a good time. Is Satan's plan to expose creation's delicacies as weaknesses? through crafty speech. Let me say that again. Satan's plan, what's going to motivate his entire trial here, this is what he's going to do. He's going to expose creation delicacies as weaknesses. Notice that. The Bible does use the term weak in different lights. It's not necessarily a pejorative. But I want to make this clear. Delicacy may be a better word to highlight how things don't have to be solid, strong, in order for it to have value and meaning. When God creates things, there's grades here, right? There are some things that are designed for strength, and there are some things that are designed to be delicate and be protected, okay? That's different than just saying strong and weak, and whatever's weak needs to be eliminated because it's not worthy. Only the strong survive, you know, operating in more Darwinian evolutionary terms, Okay, so that's his plan. He's going to expose creation. He's going to look at that and say, I can do a better job. I can create something that's entirely impervious. And how I'm going to do it, I'm going to go through the delicacies. Verses 1 through 5. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's the first thing? So he's going to go and expose the delicacies, and he goes to the woman. He goes to the woman because the woman is the weaker vessel, quoting 1 Peter. And again, it's not a pejorative. Okay? It's not a pejorative. But he views it as a pejorative in creation. So he goes to the first, to the, to the woman. And his approach, let me say this in general. He's using a creature to counsel the woman that's then going to counsel the man. Notice how this is functioning in reverse to the hierarchy that God had created. The animals don't get to consult or con- counsel. They don't get to counsel images of God. That's not their purpose. 
So the enemy, the accuser, from the beginning is, I'm going to break the entire harmony that's in here. This harmony that works together, that is not seeking to kill one another for power, that is not seeking to be first at all costs. No, all these things, the strength and the delicacies are in harmony, right? So he's going through a creature to tempt the woman, and then the woman is going to counsel Adam. Okay, so let's look at womanhood in general. So the word in Hebrew is the same wordplay that we saw for Adam. So in Hebrew, Adam, Adamah and Adam, they go together because we're created from the ground. There's this intimate relationship with the ground from which we were created. And so with man, it's Ish, Isha. From the man, she is created, denoting that same intimate relationship that we have with our ground, with the work that God has planted us to do and work here in, on earth, right? There's something with our hands that goes with natural creation. And so the woman is created from the man. She is Adam's helper, but this is denoting Adam's inadequacy in being alone, not her inferiority. Okay? That's important. It's his inadequacy in being alone, rather than her being inferior. They are together. We, when, when you look at Adam in Hebrew, Adam means human, the more pure translation. And then when Eve, after she falls, Eve means life. So you have this human life together, right? That you need both for the image of God to be in harmony and in completion. So she is Adam's helper, and she is to help him in his commission to take dominion. She is made from man. She is named by man. Okay? And this picture in, in Genesis 2, we're not going to go there now, but I, once, once the fall happens, we're going to keep this poetry that Adam says in Genesis 2, verses 23. This is at last, is bone of my bones, a flesh of my flesh, I sh- and shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. This is the only, the only little prose that Adam says before the fall. And he's singing the praises of the woman that was made from him. So that's important given the antithesis that happens after the fall between male and female. And we're going to look at it in, in juxtaposition when we get there. But just to keep it fresh in your mind. At first there's this song and poetry of harmony and beauty, of strength and delicacy. And then it becomes... Well, I'm stronger than you. You are weaker than I am. And this is about dominion by force. And that's the terribleness of sin. Anyways, so she is made from man. She's named by man and is joined together in marriage, denoting federal headship, which I think Michael said last week, pointed out that that woman is made from man in that light and in the covenant of marriage. We see that the institution of the family is pre-fall. Is the institution that is exist that is has been existent since creation through falling in sin. All the rest of the institutions, including the church, happens after the fall. So this is very intimate. Okay, this is this is what's at the very bare bones of creation: the relationship with man and God, man's relationship with the ground and his call to dominion, and then the intimate relationship between man and his wife all very tightly knit. And so the enemy is coming to subvert that very...
very harmony of strength and delicacy. So Satan subverts the hierarchy in creation, like I, I mentioned before, with an animal counseling the woman to rebel from her call under the authority of the man. But more closely, Satan tempts Eve. What's his first move? Think of this as, every time I read it, I feel like I'm, um, every time I read Satan, it's like a criminal defense lawyer. <laughs> Almost like a criminal defense lawyer. How is he going to defend a criminal? Like, what's, what's the attorney's mode of thinking? is exploiting whatever inconsistencies or generalities in the law to work in his favor. Am I right, Tyler? Somewhat? (laughs) I only ask him because he's starting to be a lawyer. All right. But the mode that I've seen is that. Is, okay, this is what the law says, and this is what you clearly did. Like any person who's living life would see a a crime committed, it's like, listen, man, you, you, you clearly broke the law. So in comes the criminal and says, was that really the law? Was it, was it really, did you really commit that? And then it starts to draw out a case. How? This reminds me of the Pharisees. If you've been paying attention to Pastor Proctor's series, what's been the common thread when God makes his commands? It's to make sure, listen, don't be a people that's walking right up to the ledge of breaking the law and saying that you're in compliance because you're like two inches from breaking it. That's, this is not, this, that's not the way. Stop thinking that way. That is serpent wisdom. That is serpent wisdom. It's wisdom, but it's from the serpent. It works for a time, but it always leads to death. It might give you quick results. It might acquit you in the short run, but it's not going to acquit you from the ultimate judgment of God. Why? Because the spirit of the law is the heart. It's what's here. It's this desire to love God and love neighbor in an honest spirit. It's not, let me see how how imprecise this law is so I can exploit the holes for my benefit. So Satan is acting like a criminal defense lawyer. And And he's questioning Eve and he's testing to see two things. How precise is God's command in her mind? How precise and how precise has Adam's teaching been? Remember, Adam is the federal head. And part of Adam's role, and part of our role as husbands, is to teach our wives. That's part of it. It's to disciple our children. Right? And how do you disciple? You are precise in how you disciple. You want to make every definition clear. You want to teach doctrine clearly. You want to give wisdom clearly. Everything is driven by this sense of clarity. So the enemy is going to come in because she's delicate. Because they're just coming off fresh of the command. And everything's been made blue and beautiful. Now he's going to expose that innocent delicacy by saying, How precise can you be with God's command? And so Satan introduces this pharisaical hermeneutic. That's what I'm calling it. This Pharisee, it it typifies that. Although the the Pharisees obviously want to be in obedience to God or pretend obedience. But it kind of starts that mode of thinking. How am I going to be in compliance with the law without actually being in compliance with the law in my heart? So Satan starts his, let let me me start this, this interaction with the most delicate piece of creation and confuse how? How precise? 
And if you're not precise, I'm going to start muddying the waters. And I'm going to start to paint this picture as a criminal defense lawyer on how you are being victimized by God. That's the next step. Muddy the waters because you're not being precise. You're not being attentive. Has Adam taught you well? Mm, Let's see. And start to ask questions to muddy the waters and then start to seed this. You are a victim because you were made second. You don't have the same privileges. That's a bad thing. And start to change the perception. Change the perception. That's one of the things that we're going to discuss next week. How perception is going to play a key role after the fall throughout redemptive history. How does Israel perceive themselves? When they're tested, when God changes the circumstances, whether it's defilement in the land or in prosperity, are you going to trust God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength? No matter what it is that you see, trust in my word and in my promise. Perception. Okay? And that's going to drive our sanctification. When we sin, our perception has been completely clouded. We say, why is this happening to me? Is Yahweh punishing me? When in reality, he is blessing you. He is caring for you. He is sustaining you in his son. And every time we sin, is that betrayal? No, you're not. You are not sustaining me. Therefore, I'm going to do this other thing. Because it provides me this immediate pleasure that I so desire in my heart. And I'm just going to take it. I'm not going to wait for you. I'm not going to trust you. Okay? That's Satan 101. All right, let's leave it there. We'll, we'll see it next week. Any questions?